2: in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management.
1: Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs good afternoon everyone and welcome back to another week of women to watch here on wwdB talk 860 and women to watch. net uh, my name is Sue Rocco and we have two wonderful women waiting uh, to come on the air this afternoon the first is our monthly contributor our very own Kristen Hillsley a financial advisor of the Foley Hillsley group of Robert W. Baird and Company, and our very special guest following Kristen is going to be Yasmin Mustafa, who is a tech entrepreneur here in Philadelphia, community leader, and the founder of Roar for Good. So uh, quickly before we get started, I want to give out our website address, where you can find all information related to the show, as well as our lineup, which is scheduled through October right now, uh, with a really incredible list of uh, very successful and amazing women, and you can find that information at WomenToWatch.net. That's Women, the number two Watch.net. And as always, um, please follow us on social media. Uh, We are at Women to Watch Media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So uh, let's get started with Kristen Hillsley, who's going to join us uh, at the top of the show today and talk a little bit about the ins and outs of 401k investing. Kristen, welcome to the show. Hi am sure thanks. Listen, I'm going to make a mention as well. We're having a little bit of technical difficulties with our phone today, so our audio is not going to be top-notch, um, but we're making the best of it. So I can hear you and you can hear me, right? Yes. Very good. So I understand you wanted to talk a little bit about 401k investing and specifically the top four mistakes that people sometimes make. Right, and
0: I'll just share a little story with you. I remember um, I wasn't always a financial advisor. When I first graduated from college, I was in marketing for a health system, a hospital system in the suburbs, and I remember one of the benefits of being an employee was that you got to invest in a 403B plan, which is just like a 401K plan, but for nonprofits. And so um, I was very excited to invest in it. I had no idea what it was. I didn't know the difference between a doctor a bond but I made an appointment with the 401k representative and I was ready to learn all about investing and um, I was really disappointed because I went in and and they were just like okay they sat me in front of a computer they had me take a quiz and I didn't really even understand half of the questions at that point and it ended up saying that I should invest 60% of my portfolio in stocks and 40% of my portfolio in bonds. And at the ripe old age of, you know, 22, 23 at the time, um, that probably wasn't the right allocation for me. Um, So fast forward all these many years later and now I have my MBA in finance and I've been advising clients for, you know, over a decade on how to invest the assets and 401Ks and, and the like, and I just still think back to that moment and think, well, what would have happened if I hadn't switched careers? What would, Where would I be financially? So we put our heads together, and and by we, I mean my, my partners and I at um, at Baird, and we put together a paper that talks about the four biggest mistakes that investors can make with their 401K plans just to try and help people that don't have a really good decision-making person to go to or any kind of tools for them to use to help them make the right decisions. Um, So we like to start off by saying that... um, 401 investing or investing in general can be a challenge and if you look there's a company called Dow and they do a study every year to see how investors are doing against the market and what we see is that investors on the stock side anyway only earn about half of what a regular index like the S&P 500 earns. So if the S&P over 20 years is earning about 10% a year, the average stock investor is earning only 5 And the reason why is because the markets are so volatile. And so if you think about what people say when you talk about investing, they say, you know, I'm going to wait until the market calms down a little bit before I get back in. Or they might say, like right now, they're saying, wow, the market's really going gangbusters. I want to invest. And if you translate those two comments, they're really saying, I wanna buy when the market is high and I want to sell when the market is low. And if you've ever tried to make money buying something that's expensive and selling it cheaply, you know that that's not a good value proposition. <laughs> right. And so um but there is good news for four hundred one K investors and and that is that there's been a lot of attention with four O one K. So um Legislatively, and there's been legal issues cases where um, right now there's a lot of attention on 401ks, and it has pushed the cost of 401ks. Uh, down, and that's great for investors because the less you pay in the fees, the more that stays in your pocket. The other thing, too, is that there's been more of a conscientious effort to make sure that your 401k plan has good investments in it. So, um, typically, when you're picking your investments, you know now that they're probably the expenses are pretty good and that the, the, the investment options are pretty good. But one of the, the key things that I'll, I'll you know, there's The paper goes on and on, but um, for our purposes, one of the key mistakes I think that investors make when it comes to their 401k plan is not putting enough money in. You don't have to make the highest salary in the world. Build a sizable 401k. But what you do have to do is start saving as much as you can, as early as you can. Um, I have a client whose daughter is going for her master's degree, and we just did a, a financial plan for her daughter. And in order for her to have the kind of lifestyle that she wants to have in retirement, and and she, you know she's looking at the typical retirement age sixty seven type retirement, she has to start saving ten percent. Right away. So, if you're looking for a rule of thumb, you know, 10% is a really good one. Um, and I can go on with a couple other suggestions, but I'm
1: not sure how much time we have. Uh, just a, just another minute. Um, I, I'm wondering, is that is that 10% realistic, Kristen, for you know, young people fresh out of college that perhaps don't have a great uh, salary? i sorry, what was that? I was asking if is 10% realistic for someone who's right out of college and perhaps not making a significant salary? Well, it all
0: depends. So, if you, I think it is really realistic for when you're first starting because you don't necessarily have all the expenses that pile on necessarily when you start having kids if that's the, you know, if you choose to do that or uh, buy a house. So, I think the earlier you can get that 10% the better. Um, But if you're not at 10%, if you're at 0%, and 10% seems so daunting, then maybe you start at 2%. And then typically, you know, every year you might get a raise. So instead of spending that money, maybe you go from 2% to next year, it's 4%. And then maybe the next year, it's 6%. So you kind of can get there. And the other thing I'll say is that it's not just um, young people that face this challenge. A lot of our Clients are established um, investors. Some of them are even financial professionals, um, and they still have the same questions about how to invest a 401K. So it's, it's really a, a – it goes across all different ages of how
1: difficult this issue can be. Yeah, you know, just before the show, I had mentioned to you my own daughter um, who's already investing in a 401K, and we were pleasantly surprised at the percentage that the company was looking to match. And I guess if if you do – if you are with a company who's going to match that investment, there's probably different parameters around what you should
0: Right. Yeah. Company matches are challenging, um, because, you know, in in the years ago many people had pensions and that was how they retired. Right. And then the four oh one K came into play and it started to replace the pension as the largest asset that people have to save for retirement. Mm-hmm. Um Now, if you think back to 2008 and 2009 with the financial crisis, what happened at that time was a lot of companies had to cut their match. So perhaps it was more generous pre-2008, and then they cut it. Now, there's still a lot of companies that haven't bumped that back up again, and that puts it even more on the investor to have to try and make up that difference so even though that 10 percent might seem like a a big number it's really it really is a good rule of, of thumb to try and get
1: there if you can okay um listen i think what we'll do because we are we're out of time i know you wanted to go through four kind of mistakes that people make investing in their 401k and why don't you forward those to us and we'll be sure to post those on our website and social media Oh, that would be great. I'll be happy to. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks for joining us today, Kristen. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, take care. Jill. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, uh-huh. it, now I am a, I'm thrilled and excited to introduce my very special guest this afternoon. Right. Again, her name is Yasmin uh-huh. Mustafa. And Yasmin hey, man, is a uh-huh. tech entrepreneur here in Philadelphia. She is a community leader and she is the yeah, founder of right. Roar for Good. Okay, are we ready? Uh, Yasmin, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So great to hear your voice. Finally, you and I have spoken for um, quite some time, I guess, via uh, email and, and online, and it's, it's nice to finally have you join me on the show to share your story. Same here. And were you just traveling? I think you were somewhere far away
3: I was just in Orlando for at the annual BlogHer conference, which was incredible.
1: Okay, terrific. Um, well, listen, I I would love to get started right away with um, a little bit about your unusual uh, upbringing, and have you talk for a few minutes about your first eight years um, in Kuwait, right. which is where you were born before you moved to the U.S. Um, and talk to to the listeners a little bit about what those first eight years were like, um, particularly around the Persian Gulf War.
3: Sure, yeah. So I was born, my parents are Palestinian, and I was born in Kuwait. They moved there after they were married. And to be honest, I don't remember that much before the Persian Gulf War. It, it was so encompassing and so unexpected and life-changing that I have very few memories before that. The, what I remember the most is being around family, our aunts and uncles and grandparents and cousins, every day just being surrounded by them. And when the war happened, we no longer kept, we kind of lost touch. Uh, I think that's part, partially the reason I remember that so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the Persian Gulf War was completely unexpected, and I can dig into that a little bit more Uh, when I was 8 years old my parents took a trip to Philadelphia it was supposed to be a few weeks it ended up being a few months meanwhile we were back in Kuwait being taken care of our grandmother and a few weeks after they come back with my little baby brother he happened to be born there during their trip Uh, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait for its oil and we would run down to the bomb shelter every time we heard a siren and one day I remember very clearly being in the floor of the bomb shelter, the ground is shaking and the windows are rattling and everyone is panicked around me and these two men suddenly burst into the bomb shelter and they yell out my little brother's name and what happened next completely changed my life. It turned out they were deployed by the U.S. Embassy to go and collect all American citizens outside the country. For their safety, And because my little brother had just been born in Philadelphia, we got to come along. So they told us we had one hour to pack two bags amongst the eight of us, and they put us on a plane and took us to Philadelphia.
1: Wow. Wow. I mean, I know there's probably much more to this story than that, but what an incredible experience to go through um, as a young girl. And I think sometimes when things on that level happened to us when we're young that we're not old enough to really uh, kind of uh, be clear about or understand, it still leaves you with some anxieties and and I'm wondering if that's the case for you that um, those really scary moments are something that um, come back to you as an adult
3: Absolutely When I look back, I actually remember being excited because it was going to be the very first time I was going to be on a plane Mm -hmm. and I also remember thinking that we were going to come back that it was just temporary. So coming into Philadelphia, the culture shock, the language barrier—that it was just, just you know, a little. We're, we're going to spend a few time, a few months here, and then we're going to go back, and everything's going to be okay again. Yes. So it didn't really fully hit me, I would say, until when I was nine, my parents ended up purchasing a Seven Eleven store and moved us out to the suburbs, enrolled us in school there. When I realized, okay, maybe we're not coming back as much as or as quickly
1: as as I thought, and maybe we're never coming back. Mm. And you were one of eight children, is that correct? Or were there eight total? One of one
3: of six, six. Uh,
1: eight total with my parents. And mom and dad. And and I was going to ask you how you ended up in Royersford, which is, as you mentioned, a suburb of Philadelphia. So um, your parents opened up that 7-Eleven. How did that opportunity um, come to them?
3: You know, it wasn't what was planned. My dad was well-known as an mechanical engineer in his field in Hawaii and in Iraq and throughout the Middle East. But when he came here, unfortunately, like many immigrants, he was stripped of his degree. A lot of white-collar workers, their educational degree just doesn't transfer over when they move to the States. And he tried to find a job in his field, but no one would. Him. No one would accept any interview offers from him once they saw where he was from. Mm. So he tried to find other jobs and was unsuccessful and finally met someone who worked as a 7-Eleven, uh, another immigrant who had a similar experience. They ended up talking, forming a friendship, and then he found the 7-Eleven store in Mortar's that was for sale and we moved there once he purchased it Okay. because he you know to to him he had to do whatever he could to
1: support his family okay so really I would say that you know that probably was the start for you in learning um and experiencing entrepreneurship
3: absolutely yeah it was it was a family business so I was working there uh you know as early as 9 and we would, It was directly across from the middle school and directly across from the high school. Mm-hmm. And because of the 24-hour store, as most 7-Elevens are, it was just all-encompassing. So every day we were there, whether it was after school, whether it was on the weekends. And yet running it, being kind of the back of the operations, if you will, definitely gave me a good exposure to what it would be like to, to run a business.
1: Now, do you have fond memories of those years or do you, you know, was it, were you a young kid and thinking, geez, I really wish I was out with my friends after school and, you know, out playing and and doing activities, but I I have to chip into the family business.
3: (laughs) You know, it's an interesting question because, you know, it, it was all I knew. So I did have a reference point to compare it to and it was my friends, but I thought to myself, you know, this is we just, we have to do what we have to do. This mm. is the only way that we can eat and put clothes on our back. And it wasn't really until I got a little bit older that I realized that it's not necessarily a normal upbringing. And I do, looking back, do I wish that I would have had, you know, quote unquote, more, more normal life? I don't know, because I feel like my work ethic that I have today, part of the reason why I became an entrepreneur is due to those experiences. So it's hard to say. Mm. And in terms of fond memories, um, uh, I want to, I want to say not too fond <laughs> because coming, uh, to Warrior Ford was a challenge because I was, we were one of, um, a very small pool of, it, it was, a uh, not many Arab people there and, um, we were running the 7-Eleven store. I was picked on in school. I was called the 7-Eleven girl. I, I, that was my name, and, mm. you know, trying to learn English at the same time. I had uh, a slight accent when, when I was younger. So, um, yeah, those years, just in general, middle school and high school are, are years I I would rather try to not remember, to okay. be honest.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, you know, that's... that. Is what it was for you and, and I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on the whole immigration process as far as your own personal experience I think you have written some things about that
3: yeah well as the refugee ban obviously I have been very involved in the immigration refugee uh, conversations that have been happening and a lot of what I talk about is the concept of the birth lottery the birth lottery is I actually talked about it at TEDx Philadelphia two years ago, and it's this notion that we don't control where we're born. We don't control if we're a man or a woman, if what race we are, if we're born rich or poor, um, in the city's government that we're born into, the religion that's just put the stone upon us, and, and basically how we have no influence over those traits at the very beginning and how they shape our lives how they shape the opportunities that we're going to have and the challenges that we're going to have. And immigrants coming into the United States, unfortunately, do face uh, a bit more challenges, and especially refugees. No one is born wanting to be a refugee. So I've been very uh, vocal in discussing the whole thrift flattery concept with the hope that in thinking about how we just have no influence at all at our starting point that we can be more empathetic to others in need.
1: Mm. So your your hope is that, you know, having these conversations and bringing more awareness will um, shape people's views then uh, of immigrants.
3: Right, exactly.
1: Yeah.
3: yeah, and I'll tell a story a little bit related to this Um so it took me a long time to become an American citizen, so even though we were plucked out of that bomb shelter by, by two A.S. ambassadors and brought over to Philadelphia, somehow something slipped through the immigration system, and when I was 15 and applying for colleges, I found out I didn't have a social security number, and when I went to apply for one, I received some shocking news, and it was that I was considered illegal and undocumented, and it was really tough learning that. And for, I won't get into too many other details, because I don't know how much time we have, but for, once I started the application process to become a U.S. citizen and get that social security number, to one, I became a legal resident, it took 10 years. And wow. then it took another five years to become a U.S. citizen. And I just became a U.S. citizen five years ago. So five years ago, I remember... Like I'll tell you the date and time. <laughs> it was April 19th, 2012, exactly ten thirty nine a.m. Oh. And I remember that date and time because it meant so much to me. And,
1: that and how did you get that
3: a huge party? I mean, I, I was so happy. I was so excited. The they had finally come and I had been waiting for it for so long. And I remember at one point, my friends realizing that some of them were hugging me really tight and they were really, really excited. And, some of them were just like, you know, so what? And realizing that it was my immigrant friends that really got the significance of it, and that most of American friends were ambivalent. Mm-hmm. And that was an eye opening moment for me because it really taught me a lot about, you know, when things are handed to you, I think as human beings, we're more likely to take it for granted versus when we have to earn them. And for me, becoming a U.S. citizen meant like, I, you know, it meant. And that I finally had a voice, that I belonged, and that I could do all these things that I couldn't do before. That I could. I was already graduating from school, but when I was in school, it took me eight years to graduate because I could only go part-time at first, and then I have to work two jobs to put myself to school, which means I have to go part-time to school, and I couldn't apply for scholarships. I couldn't apply for federal aid. I couldn't apply for loans. That social security number, that nine-digit number on that little blue card, has a lot of power, and there's so many things that I couldn't do as a result. So just that little antidote to to provide some perspective to the challenges that I had.
1: And was this, uh, it took 15 years, really, you know, by the time you add the 10 and the 5 together, and going through the proper channels, that's how long it took?
3: Yes. Wow. Wow. um, So after 9-11, Um, anyone who was Arab, there was just a freeze put on their application.
0: So
3: Mm -hmm. 9-11 had an effect and then the process was really slow. I I wish I could give more information as to why it was otherwise. I know that normally it takes about, once you apply, it takes about uh, seven years to become a legal resident and then you once you have your green card, you're obligated to wait for five more years until you can apply to become a U.S. citizen and I, as soon as I got the notification that I could apply, I
1: did. I wonder if, and and this is a good question for you as someone who's been in technology, if you think that, that technology will streamline this process where, you know, back in the day with literally paperwork itself can be daunting and really slow down the process
3: definitely there's actually a philadelphia company that's working on that right now i believe it's called borderwise.com i'm actually i just turned my computer back on so that i could check to make sure that that's the right number but their goal is that instead of going through immigration lawyers instead of um because unfortunately there is a lot of especially for undocumented people uh there is a huge uptick where when they hire a lawyer to help them become legalized, they run into some scams where their money that you know, is just taken from them, mm, and because right. they don't have any rights, they don't have really any any way to get that back, and they have to re-save um, to go and apply again. So right. it's a huge challenge for those who are undocumented trying to become legalized, yeah. Um but yeah, there's a company it's called Borderwise.com that their big goal is to try to streamline that process to make it easier for immigrants to become legal legal residents. And it's Borderwise.co.
1: Okay, great. Um, you know, in, in the, the, the problem is even with technology, it's a lot of online forms. So even though you may, perhaps you're not, you know, handwriting a form, you're still filling out a lot of information. I'm, I'm curious, Yasmin, to know if if you have, a, an a, somewhat of an understanding on the importance of it. So in, in light of, you know, the world that we live in, it's it's a scary place. And that certain, you know, precautions have to be taken and and every country, not just the United States, but any country um, has to be careful. And, you know, what is your view on that or your understanding, I'll say, for why the process even exists?
3: Well, we, we do have extreme vetting for anyone that's coming into the country, for immigrants and refugees that apply to come in. And it is a very tedious, cumbersome process where I forget exactly how many steps there are, but I remember watching a video that took, um, took everyone through the process that it takes where, you know, your whole background, they dig into everything, you, yourself, your family, your relatives. They want to make sure that everyone stepping foot into US soil, one wants to be there mm-hmm. and two does not have any affiliation with terrorism. Right. So I do I believe we have a really, really nice vetting process to ensure that people that want to come into this country um, are, are vetted um, to the utmost uh, uh utmost security and um and I don't know much beyond, you know, what Trump is trying to do. I, I think he wants to add a little bit of more stuff. Um, I, I do remember seeing something along the lines of that. I think the number there there has never been any terrorist association
1: with anyone we have brought here at the refugee or something along those lines. Mm hmm. Well, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I think today, just today, it came out in the news that um, there's been some support, a partial support of the travel ban. Did you see that on the news? Who, who support the travel ban? That there's been some some, some a partial support from uh, the government, or not the government, the legislator on you know the travel ban that he's looking to implement. So, it, it, it just came out on my way into the studio. I'm not clear on what exactly that means, but. Um, you know, it's a, it's a tough it's a tough tough thing to sort out. But I think you know, talking to you, someone who has you know literally personally been through the process, it's always good to have uh, people like you speak out and and give the facts on what exactly happens.
3: I think that's, a, that's unfortunate if they if, if that's true. I think that's unfortunate you yeah. I I recently celebrated my birthday in February by going to Colombia. And I remember the ACLU sending out some uh, emails and and tweets that even if you were a U.S. citizen coming back into the country and traveling around that time, you have to be very careful about going through customs and to the point where because they found cases that other U.S. citizens were being asked for their phones, having them confiscated, having... Their social media accounts, search to see what they have said about our president, or see if there's, you know, anything in there that might be um, uh, basically invading your privacy to see what, um, you know, what you what you think about what's going on in the political world. That I got to the point where I was afraid that it was going to happen to me, and I logged out of all social media accounts. I had my friend that I was traveling with, my white friends. Uh, escort me, go through the customs with me, just to be extra careful. I called my brother and my mom and told them, hey, something were to happen. Here's what you do. I passed along the guidelines that the ACLU sent them. And I think it's, it's really unfortunate to live in that type of fear. Yes. Um, when I was undocumented, you know, it wasn't, I didn't choose to be undocumented. I came here by the, the U.S. government came and collected me and living in fear for those uh, 10 years. Mm. Was not. It's not something I would wish upon anyone right. to have this feeling of. You know, maybe any moment I could be sent back to a country that I don't feel like I belong to, while trying to assimilate and do the best I can in this country where I'm at, and just walking on eggshells mm. uh, all the time, and, and not really being able to open to anyone and tell them what's going on because being afraid that they might go and get mad and, you know, report you or something like that. I think if, if it is true that there is some partial... Um, allegiance
1: to that, uh, I think that's unfortunate. Yeah, I, I agree. And especially someone like you, who's not only here doing, you know, kind of, you know, being a good citizen and, and doing um, what you're meant to do, you're, you're going above and beyond with the work that you do. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and, and when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about your, you know, degree from Temple and your first startup and how that idea came about. We'll be right back. Huh?
2: This is Kristen Hillsley, financial advisor of the Foley Hillsley Group, with a big announcement. Last fall, I hosted a women's lifestyle conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances. Now I'm excited to an- announce a new partnership with Women to Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more, all available at WomenToWatch.net and our own website. Group.com I'm thrilled about this new partnership and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at Group.com. the Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird and Company member SIPC log on to com to learn more that's F O L E Y H I L L S L. EY or call 610 238 6636.
1: Two three 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 one seven seven. That's msjacad.org or two one five two three 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 one seven seven. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk860, and Womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this afternoon by Yasmin Mustafa, who is a tech entrepreneur, a community leader, and the founder of Roar for Good. And uh, just before the break, uh, Yasmin, I was mentioning that you did graduate from Temple here in Philadelphia, and you graduated summa cum laude, which is impressive, and uh, you founded your first startup, a company that helped uh, writers monetize their content. How did you come up with that idea?
3: When I was uh, interning at, when I was at Temple, I interned at a at very early stage, start consulting firm there, and after graduating, they brought me on part-time, and I started, it was my first foray in the in the tech field, I started to learn all about online marketing and go-to-market strategies, and fundraising, and building a, a pitch deck and all that good stuff, and I decided to run a blog to talk about all the things that I was learning and I was able to grow that blog to be able to the top, uh, according to Dr. Norati back then, the top 100,000 blogs on the internet when one day someone said, hey, you know, do you know that you can make money while you're blogging? And I did not know that and as a strapped <laughs> entrepreneur that was broke, <laughs> I said, well, I wanna learn more and I dug into it. I added some links to my blog, kind of forgot about them, wrote this very silly blog post. It was called the Top 20 Entrepreneurial Quotes by Entrepreneur, or, uh yeah, Top 20 Entrepreneurial Quotes. It took me like 20 minutes when a normal post would take me almost two hours. <laughs> and, of course, that's the post that went viral. <laughs> it was <also laughs> on the page, stumble upon and dig. And the next day I saw that we had 10,000 hits that one day, and it just kept on growing. And then two months later, I received two checks from the links that I had added way back then. And I thought to myself, hmm, this is interesting. It took me maybe 10 minutes to put this into my site and look at what I made. And, and throughout the following months, I was making more and more. So I decided to see, so how could I streamline this process? It was an eight step process to go from finding a product, uh, applying to become an affiliate, uh, getting accepted, finding the exact product link, going to my site and putting it on there, testing, all that good stuff, and, and I just couldn't find anything out there that did it. So I decided, you know what? This is going to be my first company. I'm going to go and do this, and uh, I'm going to try to help other bloggers monetize their content and you know, have a high hu- uh, a side hustle, if you will, um, just like I wanted to.
1: That's fantastic. You know, th- the fact that you followed through on that, you know, something that had been Um, already out there. And then from what I understand, you sold that company to uh, a very prominent firm in Silicon Valley.
3: One of my advisors was trying to find a way for us to white label what we were doing for his ad network. And it took us a little bit longer because we were having some tech challenges. And I remember joking with him and saying, hey, you know, why don't we have your team do it? You should just buy us. And the next day, he called and said, let's talk about an acquisition. And it was not huge, it was it was small, it was more of an acupire, um, but it was an amazing, amazing experience working with the Silicon Valley office that they had and the Lansdale office that they had here, and I ended up joining them for a little bit over a year.
1: Okay. And how old were you at that time?
3: I was, so let's see, it was 2011, which was six years ago, so I was
1: 29. Oh, 29. Okay. Okay. Now. I'm I'm very excited to talk to you about your trek through South America. Um, I understand you took a six-month solo trek to South America. And first of all, was that following this acquisition? Or was this a couple years later?
3: It was after I became a U.S. citizen.
1: (laughs) Okay, okay. Well, I guess my first question is what did you learn from that trip
3: oh my goodness yeah sure so I first of all I did it more so as a way to kind of make up for my unusual path that I had for the years I was undocumented and even after I had my green card I wanted to travel but I couldn't and after I got my green card I just heard too many horrible stories of other immigrants with their green card who traveled and couldn't come back in so to reduce the risk, I just said I won't do anything until I become a U.S. citizen. So once I became a U.S. citizen, I started planning for for this trip, and it was really going to be the first time I was going to be unbound by my circumstances. I had worked since I was nine years old. I had my go to school. I was undocumented. It was uh, you know wearing a company. I, if it, I felt like this was going to be the first time I could be free to do what I wanted to do, and and it was amazing. It, completely changed in my life, and sometimes I find myself referring to my life as before the trip and after the trip, because it it played such a significant role into my, my life, but I learned a lot. I learned to believe in random acts of kindness to open up to strangers, and what I mean by that is when I was in the U.S., I... Because I was so afraid of my status, I didn't, I just kept a very closed type a uh, loop of friends, circle of friends, and I, I had my arm out at all times because I didn't want to get too close to anyone and have them find out and all this stuff, and and after becoming an American and, and traveling, I, I was able to shed that, and I felt like with each country that I traveled to and the people that I met, I was kind of chipping away at the armor that I had built up over the years, if you will. mm um And mentally through the trip, I stopped going by the Lonely Planet Guides, and I started going by what people told me I should do. I wasn't supposed to go to Bolivia, but I ended up going after pretty much everyone that I've talked to that has been there said that they have magnificent views of nature and lagoons and volcanoes and mountains and uh, the foot flats, and I started making up my trip as I went along, and I got to the point where when I would wake up, I would have nothing on my calendar, and I would be able to do what I wanted to do and not be constrained by meetings or calls, and it was just such a liberating feeling. I'd never had that before, and I learned about, um, oh my goodness, I don't know how much time we have, but a, a lot, <laughs> and one of, the, one of the things that kept popping up through the trip, unfortunately, was just, uh, it just opened my eyes to the violence, uh, the sex violence against women, because, As great as the trip was, because I was traveling alone, I got to meet a lot of locals, spend a lot of time with them, and travelers, and pretty much every single woman that I would talk to, and some men would share some story of a time that they were attacked or abused or harassed, and it was just endless. And when I came back to the United States a week later, uh, my neighbor uh, went after her car when she was grabbed. And assaulted and attacked. And, and that was when the idea for Roar came about, just a accumulation of all those experiences.
1: And and just so the listeners understand what you're uh, referencing, the, uh, Athena is the technical device that you've developed, correct? Yes. Yes.
3: Yeah, so uh, I could take you through the backstory there just a, a little bit. Yes. So, yes. This woman that was at the top, of my neighbor, who lived in the Santa Parma building. I when I read the news story the next day, I called up my co-founder, Anthony Gold, and told him my trip and what had happened. And the initial idea was women use pepper spray or tasers to protect themselves. And what I thought was wrong with them is that you had to pull them out of your pocket or your purse. And this is what Fitbit was all the rage. So the idea was, well, let's just take these self-defense tools and make them wearable, turn them into a bracelet. And the first idea was actually, before Athena, it was the Nacelet. Okay. In a
0: bracelet.
3: Mm-hmm. And I thought it was brilliant. And fortunately, I did some market research and found out it was actually a terrible idea. That most women were, A, afraid that they would use their own self-defense tool against themselves accidentally. And two, and this was probably the most popular statement that was said, is I'm afraid that I'll be overpowered and my own self-defense tool used as a weapon against me. So then we went back to the drawing board and we said, all right, we ought to make something that not be used against the person wearing it. We learned that women wanted something discreet, something that can uh, get them help, something that can also help deter an attack. So we took all those data points and we came up with Athena. Uh,
1: and how's it doing today and how are you marketing it?
3: Yeah, sure. So Athena is a, a clip-on, um, a wearable that you can put on any which way you want as a as a necklace. You can clip it off your clothes or your purse and it helps you connect to loved ones in moments of distress and it helps you if you would like to have someone watch over you when you feel uncomfortable. So if you're walking home late at night, for example, almost 40% of women don't like walking home late at night. You can... Athena, so that it sends your GPS location to your roommate or your mom or your dad or your boyfriend, and they get a link, they click on it, and they can see where you are all times and come and help you if you so choose. Um, how it's been going so far? It's been, so as with any startup, it's been a lot of ups and a lot of downs. We did a, it took us about two years of development to come up with Athena, and that's because every single time, we, we would prototype using 3D printers, uh, we we also prototyped, taking in a lot of feedback from self defense instructors and police officers. And then after every iteration, we would set up a self defense class uh, and have mock attacks. And we would learn something new and take that and rebuild and so on and so on. And when we were ready with our last prototype, the one that we were gonna you know go to market with, we decided well let's do a crowdfunding campaign. Let's see. So all these people have told us that they really like the idea, that they would buy one. but so let's really make sure that they will before we enter mass production. And we found the manufacturer that gave the quote. We figured out the price point. We set up an Indiegogo campaign. Our goal was $40,000. We thought that's a good number. That's a good indicator that people would be interested in what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And we launched the campaign by the second day we met that number. By the 11th day, we hit 100000 and by the end of the campaign, we ended up taking over $315,000 in pre-orders. And to us, we're like, oh my goodness, okay, there really is something to this. And we did get hit with the very first challenge, because the manufacturer that we were working with initially couldn't handle the volume. So... We ended up having to find another manufacturer, which took almost four months. Um, fortunately, Flex, our manufacturing partner, is they're a top-tier manufacturer. They make 90% of today's wearables. They don't normally work with startups like us, but they really love what we were doing and our attraction. And we signed in with them, and we started building. But, you know, right off the get-go, we were behind four months trying to find them. Once we found them, we were able to make up a little bit of that time. And where we are currently is we started shipping about nearly 10,000 pre-orders early April. We're shipping more and more every few weeks. We're shipping in batches, and we expect to finalize all our pre-orders by the end of July, which is just a really, really exciting time for us.
1: Mm, That's fantastic. Yasmin, do you have a kind of a philosophy for fundraising. You know, raising capital is such a tough thing, and and particularly in today's world where so many people, young and older, are starting their own businesses and and companies, and uh, I think entrepreneurs are always looking for advice or insight into best practices for raising money.
3: Yeah, we, we, um we, we got the question so much after our campaign that we actually collaborated, my co-founder and I, Anthony, collaborated on an article for Philly Mag, mm-hmm. where we laid out, I believe it's 10 tips of what to do and what not to do. We um, okay. because we learned a lot of what not to do. Yeah,
1: well. but that's right, which is if sometimes more can important. If you Google it,
3: War for Good, crowdfunding tips, yeah, Philly yeah. Mag, you will find, uh, you will find a list.
1: For okay. Yourself. Terrific. Um, t- tell me a little bit about what made you decide to start a chapter in Philadelphia for Girl Develop It, on top of everything <laughs> sure. else that you're doing.
3: Sure. So when I was running 123 Link It, I have to say, you have to be naive to be an entrepreneur because <laughs> I just had no idea what I was in for as a non-techie running a software company. And after having many challenges on the tech side, I decided that, in order to run my business better, I really needed to get a better understanding of how a technology worked. And I tried to teach myself how to code and I did not do well at all. <laughs> uh, it was really frustrating being, uh, you know, all like that, trying to learn and then getting stuck and not knowing what to do next and, and just getting frustrated. Mm. So I learned about Girl Development right around that time. I actually learned about it through Twitter. It's one by Sarah Chips. And Vanessa Hurst, they found themselves as the only woman in their computer science classes and when they would raise their hand to ask a question, they would get heckled. And they met other women who had similar experiences and ended up dropping out because they felt they felt so unwelcome that they said, you know what, we'll start a woman-only coding program to teach in a judgment-free, empowering learning environment how to code, how to build websites, how to... To build mobile apps, um, and I learned about it. I, I took a two-hour bus to take a two-hour class and a two-hour bus back because I was so intrigued. And by the end, I could I could develop a website, and I learned all this, you know, all this other stuff about backends and how how things work. And I felt so empowered. I went up to the founder and said, Hey, can we bring this to Philadelphia? And six months after. We did. We started in the summer of 2011.
1: Okay. And is it is it active and has it grown? What
3: was
1: that? I said, is it is it very active here in Philadelphia and has it grown the yeah, chapter? Yeah,
3: yeah, really proud. I, I, I took a advisor role last December, not the December, but December four. Uh, and uh, uh, Elise, uh, Elise and Leanne uh, currently run it. Uh, but yes, we are the most active chapter in the country. and, and it's now grown to, I believe it's now 54 chapters worldwide. Uh, we were th- well, we were the third chapter to start here, really.
1: And what's the? Age and it's been group?
3: amazing just hearing the stories of the women who have taken the program. I'm catching up with someone this Thursday. She started as a receptionist at her job. Tried to get into the tech department, they, they laughed at her. She started taking girl development classes, and within nine months, she became a, a junior front end developer. And then quitting that job and finding another and almost doubling her salary.
1: That's so awesome. Stories like
3: that, I love the, that. that, that it has yeah. Had, it's, it's, it's been amazing. That's fantastic.
1: It. Is the, What's the age group, Yasmin, for the for that program?
3: Good question. So the name is misleading. Yeah. Girl development, it. it's actually women. It's anyone 18 and up. Okay. There is another great program in Philadelphia called Tech Girls
0: for yes. high
3: school students uh-huh. for insurance purposes. Excuse me. Um, and to make sure the, the cost was as low as it was that it's affordable, mm-hmm. it's about 10 to $15 an hour for a class. Um, so uh, for example, an intro to HTML CSS class, which is what you would need to take to build a website. It's 10 hours, $100. In order to keep the cost low, we work only with women 18 and up.
1: Okay. And then there's another organization I believe that you're involved in Coded by Kids?
3: Yes. So Coded by Kids is a good example of the birth lottery in effect. And what I mean by that is Coded by Kids works with inner city kids teaching them how to code, but it's really a lot more than that. These are kids that are born into, most of them, a cycle of poverty. The staff say that 7 out of 10 people born poor stay poor. And the reason I got involved with this organization is precisely due to that staff, Mm
1: -hmm. the
3: co-founder, and just how incredible he was, and uh, with the mindset of being able to provide these kids with a community away from home, being able to provide them with much coveted tech skills that can help them break out of you know, their situation. I, I, I love that concept. And uh, I've been a board member for a little bit over two years now.
1: Terrific. Tell me, what is your view on why we need more girls and women in technology? What, what do you think it is specifically that, that women and girls bring to the development, the creativity, the design in technology?
3: biggest thing, why we need more girls, women, people of color, people of all different backgrounds and education levels is the diversity matters in terms of coming up with solutions to problems. You know, when you have the same type of people looking at the same problem, you're going to come up with a similar solution, Mm -hmm. but having people with different perspectives can increase innovation and can increase uh, problem-solving because everyone's going to come at it from a different angle. Mm -hmm. You know, like I would say today's government is a good example of, you know, there's a certain group of people that are looking to pass the Affordable Care Act, for example, or looking to pass a new health care bill. You know, because they are from one race and one gender, they're only looking at it in one direction. And studies have shown yet again and again that if you have diverse people looking at one problem, that you actually not only solve that problem better, faster, but you actually can make more money. Uh, it can affect the bottom line of the company that has more diversity within their team.
1: Right, right. I, I I agree with you. I mean, I don't know how anyone can argue the fact that when you have diversity of thought that you'll have Um, you know, a better opportunity for um, solutions and and innovation and, you know, just a a greater opportunity to come to the best solution, I'll say. Um, Tell me, Yasmin, you seem to be uh, a young woman who has led her life with great curiosity, um, a desire to learn, and also confidence. Was there someone that believed in you that helped you with that?
3: Oh boy! Well, I would say is that I'm a very person. I'm a very different person today than I was in high school, and even when I was in college, is that there were a few things that helped. I would say when I was 18, right after graduation, my dad ended up selling the 7-Eleven store, and on a warm summer day, he actually ended up leaving. He packed two bags, hopped on a plane, and it turned out he took all the family savings with him, and. As terrible as that sounds, it actually gave me kind of uh, wings to fly, if you will, because he was very strict, and there were a lot of things that we couldn't do, and I felt like – I just felt like a different person after Mm -hmm. he left. In college, I met someone. He was the program director of the Innovation Entrepreneurship Institute at Temple. His name uh, is Chris Pavlidis. He became my first mentor. And I had never had a mentor before him. I'd never had someone that was always there, willing to help. And someone that, he was the very first person in my life who looked at me and said, Yasmin, I believe in you. Mm. And it does sound so silly, but it had such a tremendous impact on me, having an adult, having someone I don't know, recognize me and acknowledge me and want to do everything they could to help me and, and believe in me. And that statement, I mean, to this day, I get a little, a little choked up thinking about it because mm. it made such a big impact in my confidence, my self-confidence. And, um, and, and, yeah, those two things, I would say, kind of help turn everything around for me.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I can imagine. I wish I had asked you that question at the top of the show <laughs> so we could have dive in deeper. But um, that's all the time we have, Yasmin. And I, I thank you so much for taking time to share your story with our audience.
3: Thank you so, so much. The last thing I want to say, if you don't mind, that we did just come out with uh, our Royal our, our Personal Safety app. Um, so for anyone that's interested in having someone watch over them as they're traveling or someone that's interested in the latest gender equality news, uh, that doesn't just want to read news, but take action against it. Definitely okay. check it out. Okay.
1: We'll personal safety app. We will, we will share that. Thanks so much, Yasmin. That's it everyone for another week of Women to Watch. Be sure to, uh, check out our website at womentowatch.net. Have a great week.